Spectrum's next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Good afternoon. I'm Rick Karnaski. Brad Swift and I are the hosts of today's show. Today we're talking with Drs. Tanya Volke and Chris Rinke of the Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute in Walnut Creek. They've recently published an article entitled Insights into the Phylogeny and Coding Potential of Microbial Dark Matter, in which they've characterized the relationships between 201 different genomes and identified some unique genomic features. Tanya and Chris, welcome to Spectrum. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, Tanya, what is microbial dark matter? We like to take life as we know it and put it in an evolutionary tree, in a tree of life. And what this assists us is to figure out the evolutionary histories of organisms and the relationships between related groups of organisms. So what does this mean? It's just say we take microbial diversity as we know it on this planet and we place it in this tree of life. What you will find is that there will be some major branches in this tree, about 30 of them, and we call these major branches phyla, that are made up of organisms that you can cultivate. So we can grow them on plates in the laboratory, we can grow them in Allenmeyer flask and liquid media, we can study their physiology, we can figure out what substrates they metabolize, we can figure out how they behave under different conditions. Many of them we can even genetically modify. So we really know a lot about these organisms and we can really figure out, you know, how do they function, what are the genetic underpinnings that make them function the way they do in the laboratory and also in the environment where they come from. So now coming back to this tree of life, if we keep looking at this tree of life, uh, we will find at least another 30 of these major branches that we refer to as candidate phyla. And these branches have no cultivated representatives. So all the organisms that make up these branches, we have not yet been able to cultivate in the laboratory. We call these candidate phyla or microbial dark matter. And the term dark matter or biological dark matter has been coined by the Steve Quake Laboratory at Stanford University when they published the first genomes of the candidate phylum, TM7. We know that dark matter is in most, if not all, ecosystems, so we find it in most ecosystems, but to get at their complete genetic makeup, that's the key challenge. Yeah, and if you, if you want to push it to the extreme, there are studies out there estimating the number of bacteria species there are and how many we can cultivate. And the result is, or the, the estimation of the studies, we can cultivate about, you know, one or two percent of all the microbial species out there. So basically 99% is still out there and we haven't even looked at it. So this really this major uncultured microbial majority is still waiting out there to be explored. So that sort of carries on the analogy to cosmological dark matter in which there's much more of it than what we actually see, see. and understand, mm-hmm. right? So how common and how prevalent are are these dark matter organisms? Yeah, that's a really good question. So in some environments, they are 
what we would consider the rare biosphere, so they are actually at fairly low abundance. But our methods are sensitive enough to still pick them up. In other environments, we had some sediment samples where some of these candidate phyla were actually what we would consider quite abundant. It's a few percent, let's say 2% of uh, OP8 candidate phylum. That To us, even 2% is, is quite abundant. Again, you have to consider the whole community. And if one member is at 2%, that's, that's a pretty dominant community member. So it varies from environment to environment. And Chris, where were samples collected from? So altogether, we sampled nine sampling sites all over the globe, and we tried to be as inclusive as possible. So we had marine samples, freshwater samples, sediment samples, um, some samples from habitats with very high temperatures, and also a sample from a bioreactor. And there were a few samples among them that for which we had really great hopes. And among them were um, samples from the hot vents from the bottom of Pacific Ocean. The samples we got were from the East Pacific Rice sampling site, and that's about 2,500 meters below the surface. And the sample there, you really need a submersible. That's a small submarine that you can launch from a research vessel. In our case, those samples were taken by Elvin from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. And there you have a lot of volcanic activity, and also the seawater seeps into the earth crust. It get, goes pretty deep and gets heated up, and when it comes back out as a hydrothermal vent, it has up to 350 to 400 degrees Celsius. And it is enriched in chemicals such as uh, sulfur or iron. It mixes uh, immediately with the surrounding seawater, which is only about uh, two degrees Celsius. So it's a very, it's a very challenging environment because you have this gradient from two degrees to like 400 degrees within a few centimeters. And you have those chemicals that uh, the organisms, the microorganisms there could use. Plus there is no sunlight. So we thought that's a very interesting habitat to look for microbial dark matter. There were several samples that uh, surprised us. One of them is the Homestake mine in South Dakota. And that's an old gold mine that is not used anymore since 2002, but uh, there are still scientific experiments going on there. It's a very deep mine, about 8,000 feet deep, and we got our sample from about 300 feet, and we were surprised about this uh, archaeal diversity we found in those samples. There were a few archaea that were not close to any other known archaea out there. For some of them, we even had to propose new archaeal phyla. Stepping back a bit, Chris, can you tell us more about archaea and perhaps the three domains of life? The three domains were really established by Carl Woese with his landmark paper in 1977. And what he proposed was a new group of the archaea. So then he had altogether three domains. He had the bacteria and the archaea and the eukaryotes. The, the eukaryotes, they, they are different. One big difference is they have a nucleus, right? They have the DNA in the nucleus, and they also include all the higher taxa. But then you have also the archaea and the bacteria, and those are two groups that are only single-cell organisms. But they are very distant related to each other. The cell envelope all, and also the cell duplication machinery of the archaea is closer to the eukaryotes than it is to the bacteria. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, archaea are, I guess we haven't sequenced them that much yet, but archaea are very important too, but people are not aware of them. <laughs> they know about bacteria, but archaea, and maybe because there aren't any archaeal pathogens, we like to think about bacteria with regards to human health. It's very important. That's why most of what we sequenced are actually pathogens, human pathogens. So we sequence, I don't know how many strains of using your pestis and, and other pathogenic bacteria, 
but archaea are equally important, at least in the environment, but because we rarely find them associated with humans, we don't really think about archaea much or people aren't really aware of archaea. Can you talk about their importance? Their importance in the environment. So archaea are, for example, found in extreme environments. We find them in uh, hydrothermal environments. We find them in hot springs. Uh, we they have they have biotechnological importance in that a lot of quite useful in, uh, enzymes that are being used in biotechnology are derived from archaea. In part because we find them in these extreme environments and hot environments, and they have the machinery to deal with this temperature. So they have enzymes that function properly at high temperature and extreme conditions. Really extreme, we call them also extremophiles, and that makes them very attractive biotechnologically because some of these enzymes that we would like to use should be thermotolerant or should have these features that are sort of more extreme um, so we can exploit them for biotechnological applications. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. I'm Rick Karneski, and I'm talking with Tanya Volke and Chris Rinke about using single-cell genomics to expand our knowledge about the tree of life. So again, we called up a range of different collaborators, and they were all willing to go back to these interesting sites, even to the hydrothermal vent, and get us fresh sample. No one turned us down. So we we screened them again to make sure they're really of the nature that we would like to have them. And the ones that were suitable, we then fed into our single cell workflow. And can you talk briefly about that screening? There were two screens involved. One screen was narrowing down the samples themselves, and we received a lot more sample, I would say at least three times as many sample as we ended up using. And we pre-screened these on a sort of barcode sequencing level. And so we down-selected them to about a third. And then within this third, we sorted about 9,000 single cells. And within these 9,000 single cells, only a subset of them went through successful single cell whole genome amplification. And out of that set, then we were only, we were able to identify another subset. And in the end, we selected 200 for sequencing, 201. And how does single cell sequencing work? So to give you a high level overview, you take a single cell directly from the environment, you isolate it, and there's different methodologies to do that, and then you break it open. You expose the genetic material within the cell, the genome, and then you amplify the genome, and some single cells will only have one copy of their genome, and we have a methodology. It's a whole genome amplification process that's called multiple displacement amplification, or MDA, and that allows us to make from one copy of the genome millions and billions of copies. One copy of the genome corresponds to a few femtograms of DNA. We can't do much with it. So we have to multiply. We have to make these millions and billions of copies of the genome to have sufficient DNA for next-generation sequencing. Are there other extreme environments that you guys didn't take advantage of in this study that might be promising? Definitely. Um, so we we created a list already of environments that would be interesting to us based on you know on the results from the last study and the experience we have with environmental conditions and the resulting microbes we got out of it so we're definitely planning um to have a follow up study 
where we explore all those um, habitats that we couldn't include in this uh, study. So some examples are the Red Sea and some fjords in Norway, and there are various sites that were after. And the, the, the Black Sea is a very interesting mm-hmm. environment too. It's it's completely anoxic, high levels of sulfide, and it's it's really it's huge. So that's a very interesting place to sample too. And how historically have we come to this tree? In the old days, and I mean the the, the pre-sequencing area, um, the main criterion that scientists used to categorize organisms was the phenotype. That's the, the morphology, the biochemical properties, the development. And that was used to put uh, organisms into categories. And then with the dawn of the sequencing area, and that was mainly um, pushed by the Sanger sequencing, the development of the Sanger sequencing in the 70s, we finally had another criterion we could use, and that was the DNA sequence of organisms. And that was used to classify and categorize organisms. Does... Uh phenotyping still play a role in modern phylogeny? It, it still does play a role in modern phylogeny, especially for eukaryotes where you have a very significant phenotype. So what you do there is you, com- you compare phenotyping information with the genomic information and on top of that even uh, information from paleontology and you try to combine all the information you have to infer, let's say, the, the evolutionary relationships among those organisms. In, in modern times, the phylogeny of bacteria archaea is mainly based on, on molecular data. Part of our results were used uh, to infer phylogenetic relationships and to, to study the evolutionary history of those microbes. What we, what we have for the first time is we now have genomes for a lot of those branches of the tree where before we only had some uh, barcodes. So we knew they were there, but we had no information about the genomic content. And now, since we have that for the first time, we can actually look at the evolutionary history of those microbes. And there were um, two two main findings in our paper. One was that for a few groups where the, the placement, the taxonomic placement in the tree of life was kind of debated in the past, we could help to clarify that. For example, one group is the chlorchemonids, and it was previously published that they could be part of the phylum of the spirochetes. But we could clearly show with our analysis that they are their own major branch in the tree of life, they are their own phylum. And uh, a second result that's I think it's very and important. It, sorry, yeah. that that's because they didn't share a lot of genes with other spirochetes. Is that? That's that's right. So if you place them in a tree of life, you can see that they don't cluster close to spirochetes. They come out on the other side by that by themselves. There's not much resembling of the spirochetes there. Mm-hmm. And the second result was that uh, we found several of those main branches of the tree of life, those phyla, they, they cluster together consistently in our analysis, and so we could group them together and assign superphyla to them. One example is uh, three bacterial phyla, there were OP11, OD1, and Gino2, and those always clustered together, so we proposed the superphylum name Pateski bacteria. And Pateski means um, bare or simple, and we choose that because they have a reduced and streamlined genome as another common feature among them. And I have to say that, you know, looking into evolutionary relationships, it is it is a moving target because, as Tanya mentioned, especially for microbes, um, bacteria and archaea, there are still so many um, candidate files out there for which we have no genomic information. So we definitely need way more sequences um, to get a better idea of the evolutionary relationships of all the bacteria and archaea out there. Spectrum is a public affairs show about science on KALX Berkeley. Our guests today are Tanya Volke and Chris Rinke, who use single-cell genomics to find
find the relationships between hundreds of dark matter microbes. Can you speak to the current throughput? I would have thought that <laughs> gathering up organisms in such extreme environments was, was really the time-limiting factor, but I suppose if you have this archive, other steps might end up taking a while. I would say the most time-consuming step is really to uh, to sort those single cells and then to lyse the single cells and amplify the genome and then of course to screen them for the for genomes of interest for microbial dark matter genomes. That, that that was a that was a big part of the study. So actually getting the genomic information out of the single cells, and if that can be even more streamlined and uh, and pushed to a higher even more throughput level, I think that will speed up the recovery of of novel microbial dark matter genomes quite a bit. We, we have a pretty sophisticated pipeline now at the JGI where we can do this at a fairly high throughput. But as Chris said, it still takes time, and every sample is different, every sample behaves different. Depending on what the properties of the samples are, you may have to pre-treat it in a certain way to make it most successful for this application. Another step in the whole process that takes a long time is the, the quality control of the data. So the data is not as pretty as uh, sequencing data from an isolate genome where you get a perfect genome back and the sequence data that you get back is fairly evenly covered, covered all around the genome. Single cell data is messy. The amplification process introduces these artifacts and issues. It can introduce some error because you're making copies of a genome. So errors can happen. You can also introduce what we call chimeric rearrangement. That means that pieces of DNA go together that shouldn't go together. Again, that happens during the amplification process. It's just the nature of the process. And on top of that, parts of the genome amplify nicely and other parts not so nice. So the overall sort of what we call sequence coverage is very uneven. So the data is difficult to deal with. We have specific assembly pipelines that we do. We do sort of a digital normalization of the data before we even deal with the data. So it's not as nice. And then on top of that, you can have contamination. So the whole process is very prone to contamination. Imagine you only have one copy of a single cell, five femtogram, one circle of DNA, and any little piece of DNA that you have in that prep that sometimes, as we know, comes with the reagents because reagents are not designed to deal with such low template molecules, they will co-amplify, they will outcompete or compete with your template. So what you end up with in your sequence is your target and other stuff that was in the was in the reagents or again in your prep, we have very rigorous process of cleaning everything, we UV, a lot of things we sterilize. So we need to get rid of any DNA to not... Um, to, to have a good quality genome in the end. And so that said, we have developed tools and pipelines uh, at our institute now that specifically help us detect contamination. Sometimes it's not easy to detect it and then remove it. We want to make sure that these single cell genomes that we release at as single cell genome ABC are really ABC and not A plus X and B plus K because accidentally something came along and uh, contaminated the prep. And especially with candidate phyla, it's, it's fairly difficult to detect contamination because what would help us if, would be if we would have reference genomes. We're actually generating these reference genomes. So we don't have a good reference to say, yeah, this is actually, that's our target organism and the rest is probably contamination. So it's very tricky. Are there other examples for single cell sequencing being used on this many organisms? 
On this many organisms? No, not that I'm aware of. I know there's an effort underway um, in the HMP, the Human Microbiome Project, where they also identified their, they nicely call it the most wanted list. So they have their target organisms that are quite abundant in different uh, microbiomes within the human body, associated with the human body. And they've been very successfully able to cultivate a lot of them, bring a lot of them in culture. And it may be easier for the HMP because we can mimic the conditions within the body a little bit better and more controlled. We know our body temperature and we know sort of what the milieu is in the different parts of our body. So it's a little bit easier to bring these organisms in culture than going to the hydrothermal vent and try and recreate these conditions, which are extremely difficult to recreate. So that said, um, there are some that they are now targeting with single cell sequencing. So that's another large effort that I know of that's specifically using single-cell genomics to get at some of these reference genomes. Can you get more out of this than sort of phylogenetic links? We found a few unique genomic features. And one I want to mention is we found a recoded stop codon in, in two of those uh, bacteria from the hot vents I mentioned earlier. And to give you a little bit of background, so um, as we know, the genetic information of each cell is encoded in its DNA. But in order to make use of this genomic information, this genetic information has to be translated into proteins. And then proteins that could be enzymes that are employed in the metabolism to keep the cell going. And uh, this translation is pretty universal between the three domains of life. The way it works, you have three bases in your DNA, and three bases are called a codon. And each codon is translated into one amino acid. So this way you build a chain of amino acids, and then this chain is uh, further folded, and then you have your ready-made protein. This codon triplet, these three bases, also work for start and stop. So there are certain codons that tell the cell, okay, that's where you start a protein, and another codon that tells the cell, so that's, that's where you end the protein, you're done with it. There are some slight variations, but in general, this uh, universal code is preserved between all three domains of life. And what we found was very interesting, in two of those bacteria from the hot vents, uh, those two Gracilli bacteria, we found a recoding. So one of their codons did not code for a stop codon anymore, but it encoded for an amino acid, in that case glycine. And that has never been seen before. Were you surprised by these results? To us, they were surprising because they were unique and they were different. On the other hand, I have to say, I'm not that surprised because we haven't like Chris said, we haven't looked that hard yet. And considering that we can only cultivate a few percent of all the microbial diversity that exists on this planet, as far as, we're, as far as we know it, it's not that surprising that you find these novel functions and they, this, these unique features and novel genetic codes, because it's really, it's a highly underexplored area. It is very rewarding, but if you look in the future, um, how much is still out there the sequence? Of course, we're interested in that. So we looked at all the phylogenetic diversity that's known that's out there based on those um, biomarkers that Hanya mentioned earlier. And we just compared it to the genomes that we have sequenced so far. And we really want to know, so if we want to cover, let's say, about 50% of all the phylogenetic diversity that's out there, how many genomes do we still have to sequence? And the number they estimate was we need to sequence at least 16,000 for more genomes. And this is a moving target. So this is, as we know, diversity of today. And every day we sample more environments, we sequence some deeper, and every day our diversity estimates increase. So what we've done with these 201, it's the tip of the iceberg, but it's a start. Well, Tanya and Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Well, thanks for having us, yeah.
Spectrum shows are archived on iTunes U. We've created a simple link for you. The link is tinyurl.com slash spectrum. A regular feature of Spectrum is a calendar of some of the science and technology related events happening in the Bay Area over the next two weeks. Here's Brad Swift and Renee Rao. Here today, Majority Tomorrow, expanding technological inclusion. Technological inclusion is not an issue for some of us. It is an issue for all of us. Mitchell Kapoor, co-chair of Kapoor Center for Social Impact and a partner at Kapoor Capital, will moderate a panel discussion among the following presenters. Jennifer Arguello, executive director of Latino 2. Kimberly Bryant, founder of Black Girls Code. Kanye Makibla, a venture capitalist with the Collaborative Fund. Vivek Wadwa, academic, a researcher, writer, and entrepreneur. Here today, Majority Tomorrow is free and open to everyone on a first-come, first-seated basis. This is happening on the UC Berkeley campus in Sutarjadai Hall, Banatao Auditorium, Monday, October 7th at 4 p.m. The second installment of the six-part public lecture series, Not on the Test, The Pleasure and Uses of Mathematics, will be held this October 9th. Dr. Keith Devlin will deliver a lecture on underlying mathematics in video games. Dr. Devlin will show how casual video games that provide representation of mathematics enable children and adults to learn basic mathematics by playing, in the same way people learn music by learning to play the piano. Professor Devlin is a mathematician at Stanford, a co-founder and president of Intertude Games, and the math guy of NPR. The lecture will be held on October 9th at 7 p.m., in the Berkeley City College Auditorium, located at 2050 Center Street in Berkeley. The event is free and open to the public. The Leonardo Art Science Evening Rendezvous, or LASER, is a lecture series with rotating barrier venues. October 9th, there will be a LASER at UC Berkeley. Presenters include Zan Gill, a former NASA scientist, Jennifer Parker of UC Santa Cruz, Cheryl Leonard, a composer, Wayne Vitale, founding member of Gamelan Sekar Jaya. This is Wednesday, October 9th, from 6.30 p.m. to 9 p.m. on the UC Berkeley campus in Barrows Hall, room 100. How can we prevent information technology from destroying the middle class? Jaron Lanier is a computer scientist, composer, visual artist, and author. October 14th, Linair will present his ideas on the impact of information technology on society. His two most recent books are titled You Are Not a Gadget and Who Owns the Future. The seminar will be held in Sutarja Dai Hall, Bonato Auditorium, on the UC Berkeley campus, Monday, October 14th, from 11 a.m. to noon. And now with some science news headlines, here's Renee. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released part of its Assessment Report 5 last Friday. The more than 200 lead authors on the report included Lawrence Berkeley National Labs, Michael Werner, and William Collins, who headed chapters on long-term climate change projections and climate models. The report reinforces previous conclusions that over the next century, the continents will warm with more hot extremes and fewer cold extremes. Precipitation patterns around the world will also continue changing. Warner and Collins noted that climate models since the last report in 2007 
have improved significantly as both data collection and mechanistic knowledge have grown. Using these models, scientists made several projections of different scenarios for the best, worst, and middling cases of continued greenhouse emissions. Two recent accomplishments by commercial space programs are notable. Orbital Sciences launched their Cygnus spacecraft on September 18th atop the company's rocket, Antares, from Wallops Island, Virginia. On September 28th, the Cygnus docked at the International Space Station for the first time. A SpaceX rocket carrying a Canadian satellite has launched from the California coast in a demonstration flight of a new Falcon rocket. The next-generation rocket boasts upgraded engines designed to improve performance and carry heavier payloads. The rocket is carrying a satellite dubbed Cassiope, a project of the Canadian Space Agency and other partners. Once in orbit, it will track space weather. The music heard during the show was written and produced by Alex Simon. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time. Thank you.